Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the signs, to the, to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned off it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Joanna, that was well read. Those are some tough words. Seriously, look at her. I mean, let's give her an applause. That's awesome. <laughs> All right, I have to do something. I just have to. I'm so excited about something that we have to do this before we begin. So I'm going to actually ask a couple here that has been married six days to come down here and stand right here for just a second. They're going to be so mad at me. Matt and Lizzie Rose, come on down just briefly. Come on. Come on down. <laughs> I would have had you just stand, but the camera can't get you in. There's probably 2,000 people watching this online, so not that many, actually. Everybody's six days old, and they're... Are you happy? You don't look happy at all. <laughs> He said, I'm not happy to be standing here. Would you like to kiss your bride in front of everybody? No, all right. We'll see you guys. Thank you. All right. Thank you. We had a really good time doing that wedding and their pre-marriage counseling, too. So it's, it was a delight. All right. Well, I have somebody here that formally, formally told me that the chances of him falling asleep are high tonight during the sermon. So I'm going to do my best to keep this very interesting, and I'm going to call him out if he falls asleep. I have already warned him. So one of the things I'm going to ask you to do, just to get you already getting you know, plugged into this and get thinking about this and getting ready for this, let me just ask you to dream for a second. I mean, I'm serious about this question. Would it not be amazing if the people that you love so much, but who are not Christians, would listen to you share the gospel and respond in saving faith, would that not be amazing? I mean, just think right now. Let their faces come to your mind. Who do you love that is not yet a believer and you so desperately want them, you plead with them, or at least you want to, Talk to them about Christ. Whose face is coming to mind right now? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a coworker, schoolmate. Well, how can that happen? We're going to learn in this message what you can do. And it's very simple, and it's three words, and you're going to see it as this message unfolds. Now, I'm going to ask you one more question, again, just to keep one individual from falling asleep, but the rest of us connected in. Here's a little quiz. You ready? A little theological quiz. I'm going to see how well you know your Bibles. 
and this is rhetorical, so you don't need to yell out. Just think of the answer. How many times do you think that the word mission or missions, or I'll even make it easier, or missionaries occurs in the Bible? How many times do you think it occurs in the Bible? And if you're thinking 33 times, you are not correct. If you're thinking over 200 times, you are wildly off. If you're thinking never, you are correct. Did you know that? Mission, missions, or missionary, or missionaries, never occurs in the Bible. We get our Latin word, mission, or our Latin word, missionary. It's actually mission, it's a Latin word. That's a word that we use. It means even, by the way, my alma mater, where I graduated from my, my graduate work, is now called missio. And ironically, it means sending. So the word mission means sending, but the word missionary or mission or missions is not really actually ever found in the Bible. It simply means one who is sent. But there is a biblical word. Now here's what I really want you to think about. We've already kind of uh, established that. Mission, missions, and missionary, it's not a, a biblical word, but it's a word that we can use. That's fine. It just means sent ones. But I'm going to give you the word that Jesus uses and the word that the Bible uses that propels us to go to the people that came into your mind a few moments ago. And that word is going to be up on the screen. Look at it in, in this verse. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So interestingly, let's, go, let's do a little fun grammar breakdown, and this will not be painful, I promise. There's only one verb in that entire verse that I just read to you. And that verb is make disciples. Go and baptize and teach are not verbs. Actually, they're called participles, and what they do is they modify the verb. In other words, the participles, the three that I just mentioned, they describe how to do the verb. So if you want to know how to make disciples, it's super easy. It's really not complicated. It's three words. It's go, win, and teach. Now, can you remember that? If you can remember that, you are going to be miles ahead in this message. In fact, if you can remember that and get it down into your soul, you're going to have some mileage that's going to make an impact in your life, even from leaving this service. All right? Here it is. Go, win, and teach. Remember those three words, and we're going to unpack them. How do you make a disciple? Here we go. A disciple goes as God leads. If that person's face came to your mind, I would probably tell you that's an indication of God leading you to that person. And then you baptize. All that really means, listen, don't think only water baptism. Think win people to the Lord. It's synonymous with that. You lead people to Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus has in mind. You win them for Jesus, and then you teach. You build up the new believers in the knowledge of God's word so that they can become like Jesus. Now, this is fun, right? 
Uh, that would be, yeah, thank you. One amen. Wow, this is a tough crowd. We haven't even gotten to the message yet. I'm just getting you ready for it. There's no such thing in the Bible as a missionary, only a disciple maker. And every Christian is to do that. How? By going, winning, and teaching lost people to know and become like Jesus. Now, if you understand this, then you're going to understand what motivated the early church and what drove Paul and Barnabas to go, listen, to go straight into the heart of modern Turkey. That's where they're at. Turkey, the country of Turkey. Here we go. I'm going to outline this, go, win, and teach. It's going to be super simple and I hope motivating for all of us, myself included. Look at verse 1, chapter 14. Now let's get our Bibles open. You definitely need to have your Bibles open. I could, I suppose, stare awkwardly at you until you all do that. But that would probably be dumb. So I'm just going to ask you, get your Bibles open. And if you're online and you're watching this from home, can I tell you right now, go get your Bible, get it open to Acts chapter 14. Let's be people of God's word. And as we open up to chapter 14, look at the first three words of chapter 1. Now at Iconium. All right, I got to give you some background. This is, going to pre, this is going to colorize the text. This is going to make it pop for you. It's going to make a little more sense what you're about to experience through Paul and Barnabas. There was in Asia Minor, that's where Paul and Barnabas are right now. It's called Asia Minor, a province called Galatia. So you've got this big thing called Asia Minor. It's modern Turkey, and there's a province in it, a little bit central, north, and east, called Galatia, and in Galatia, the province, is a city, Iconium. It's 90 miles east of Antioch of Pisidia, where we were the last two messages in this, in this series. And by the way, this is kind of interesting. Historians, experts tell you, tell us, that in the first century, you know they didn't have an Uber company. They couldn't call a taxi. They didn't have cars. They didn't have helicopters. They walked. Some of them had donkeys. That was a powerful sneeze. Some had donkeys, but they walked. And experts will tell you, now this is really important, okay, for lots of places in the Bible. They walked on average 20 miles a day. That's really as far as they would go. They even know they I don't know how they know, but they think they know how, what miles per hour that would be. And I think that would be boring information for you. But 20 miles a day is what Paul and Barnabas would walk. And so it's a four-day journey from Antioch of Pisidia to Iconium. But making it super much easier are the roads in Rome. And the Roman Empire. They are 12 feet wide. They are paved with stones. They were master road builders, the Roman people. And along one of these major roadways called the Via Sebast laid the city of Iconium. It's in the region of, Gal of Galatia. It's inhabited, this is super important, by the Gauls. Do you know who the Gauls were? They're Celtic people. They're warrior people. They were conquered by Rome in 189 BC, but they did not go down easy, and they remained more Greek than Roman. They were fiercely nationalistic. They held on to their customs, their religions, 
their language. In fact, let me tell you a fun little fact about the city of Iconium. The name Iconium means image. It means image. It's infused with a Greek legend. Listen to this because you will find this in all of the major civilizations. All of these remnants of the creation story and the flood story. And that was true for Iconium as well. They had a Greek legend where a great flood destroyed all of mankind. And then the gods Prometheus and Athena made human images, watch this, from human mud left by the receding waters. When they breathed life into them, they were animated into human beings. This is the lore. This is this, the, the folk tale behind the city of Iconium. It was put together and named that to celebrate these gods and goddesses. But it's a rugged city. It's 3,300 feet high on a plateau. They were famous for their golden fields of wheat, their orchards of apricots and plums. I don't know if you know this about that region, but listen, they're incredibly fertile. Their crops were amazing. So let me ask you something. I've just given you a little bit of a background, and particularly what I wanted to focus on is that the Gaul people, the Gauls, the, pe- the place of Iconium filled with the Gauls, they're warlike people. I want you to consider something that I have to consider just for a moment. Is there a group, now let's all think about this, is there a group or an area that you are especially drawn to hoping that the gospel will set people free? Now, you should be answering that in your mind. Is there an area, maybe it's downtown Easton. For me, it's partly, at least one of the areas, is the Slate Belt. Maybe it's Phillipsburg. Maybe it's your hometown. Maybe it's a place across the ocean. Is there an area or is there a group of people that you are especially drawn to? You think about it all the time. You pray for them. You imagine salvation coming to them. Or maybe it's actually the company that you work in or the development where you live or the school or the college that you attend. Maybe in your, in your dreams, your waking dreams, when your mind just sort of slips into neutral and it just goes on its own, maybe you think of how amazing would it be if, let's take Lafayette or Easton High School, maybe God's word just unleashes on those two places. What would that look like? How exciting would that be? Now, if there is a place that you dream of God doing an amazing work in, I am telling you that means God is drawing you to go, win, and teach there. You see, making disciples begins with going. And friends, that's where our obedience, that's where our faith is tested. Paul and Barnabas, driven out of Antioch. Listen, it wasn't a very pleasurable departure from Antioch. They were rejected. They did not go home back to Jerusalem. Barnabas did not go back to Cyprus where he was brought up. They didn't quit. They didn't give up. Directed by God's Spirit, they went straight into Iconium, a rough and rugged people to bring them the gospel of life. Where is God moving you to go? Now, you've got to answer that, Christian. If you're going to be a faithful 
minister and servant of the Lord? You just truly have to answer that. Where is God directing you to go? Now let's clear up something really, really quickly if we can. Can I get every eye on me for just a moment? You can look back down in just a minute. It's painful looking at me, I'm sure. But let me just get your attention for just a moment. You nor I have the luxury of saying no. We cannot do that. If you're going to do as Dan encouraged in worship and deny yourself daily and pick up your cross and follow Christ, that's what a disciple does, then you cannot say no to God. And as he leads, the only right response is an immediate yes in action. So even tonight, even after this message, who is God moving you to go to? You've got to put your plans into action. Because if you delay, then that will flitter right out of your heart. And you will be disobedient, and you do not want to be that. Go, win, and teach. Number two, win. Now at Nikonium, verse 1, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of, of both Jews and Greeks believed. So just like in Antioch, and you're going to keep seeing this pattern in Acts, Paul goes into a synagogue along with Barnabas, and they preach the good news of Jesus. Synagogues, I gave you a bunch of information last week, I believe. Synagogues are very interesting. You know, I told you they're all built the same way. They all were built so that they faced Jerusalem. And when the person was preaching, his back was to Jerusalem, and everybody looking at the preacher would face Jerusalem. And that's where Paul and Barnabas went in. In fact, Paul never deviated from the message of Jesus crucified, buried, and resurrected. If you want to witness for Jesus, you cannot deviate from that. It's not, it's not about all the blessings of God. It's not about how your life is going to be so satisfying if you just turn to Jesus. It's about the power of the Savior who died on the cross, was buried three days, and he was risen back to life. That's how you witness. That's the power of witnessing. It's the power of, the, of preaching. That is gospel witnessing. In fact, he told young Timothy, Paul did, whom he discipled, he said, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. So there was a pattern in Paul's preaching. There was a pattern in his teaching. Now, I wonder if you know this about Paul. And let me kind of intro it this way, okay? Listen, and I wouldn't blame you for this, okay? You've got to be, every once in a while, maybe weekly, leaving here going, oh my goodness, that was boring. When will he get a good sermon? I got to tell you, I mean, I was going to ask you to raise hands if you think that I preach boring sermons regularly, but I didn't know if I'd survive that. But let me just tell you this. Let me just tell you this. The Apostle Paul preached boring sermons. Well, how do you know? Because the Apostle Paul tells us he wasn't really a gifted preacher. In fact, his enemies said of his preaching, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. He wasn't that talented of a preacher. 
Listen, if you think somebody's got to get into this pulpit and entertain you and just wow you, that actually has more to do with your inability to listen than the inability of the person to preach. Did you realize that? Oh, that was kind of harsh. If you need to be entertained from the pulpit, you don't understand gospel preaching. Paul was not entertaining. It seems that he wasn't a powerful preacher at all. He said this about himself. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. He's saying this. I didn't wow you with my preaching. I know I'm not that gifted of a preacher, but it's not about the gifted preacher. It's about the power of the Spirit. Can you amen that? It's not the messenger that was powerful. It was the message. He preached Jesus Christ. Now, let's do something, and I do want you to raise your hands, and I want you to be honest about it. How many of you honestly believe, and if you're at home, raise your hand too if you want to answer yes to this. How many of you honestly believe you don't know how to share the gospel very well? Raise your hand. I want to comfort you, and I want to encourage you. It's not you mastering your presentation. It's just not friends. It's you having a pattern of sound witnessing. It's about Jesus who was crucified, buried, and rose back to life. You bring that into your witnessing, and you love that person, you're going to be amazed at just how much of the power of the Spirit comes through what you say. But not everyone believed in what the message was. Paul preached in the synagogue. Not everybody believed. And we need to address this for just a moment because we're going to experience the same thing as we witness to the spiritually lost. I don't know if you like me. I've shared Jesus with a lot of lost people and gotten to know. But I want you to notice what Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, tells us in verse 2. Can you all look at verse 2 with me? But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. The unbelieving Jews. Friends, unbelief is a terrible thing. I'm going to explain just what that is in just a moment. But I want you to hear something first. That unbelief, friends, you've got to understand this. This is different than doubt. Unbelief is different Then doubt, doubt is normal. Doubt is natural. Doubt is part of the experience of faith, especially when you're suffering. It's common for Christians to worry about their doubts. I must be a terrible Christian. My faith must be awful. And they get caught up in a vicious cycle of of uncertainty and shame. Listen, that's not a good thing. If you don't deal with your doubt, it can grow into unbelief. But one is inherently different from the other. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Here's what unbelief is. You ready? It's the deliberate decision to live life as if there is no God. It is a decision to reject Jesus. Do you see the difference? While one is natural, while one is normal, even in the Christian experience of faith, the other one is very deliberate. The other one is sinful. The other one is rejecting God, their only way to be saved. It's one thing... 
to not be certain about everything in the Christian faith. But listen, it's a whole nother thing to willfully reject the Christian faith or even the foundational truths of the faith. That's unbelief. It's why Alistair McGrath once said, feed your doubts and your faith will starve, but feed your faith and your doubts will starve. You know, you know where I go when I have doubts? Right back here. And Christian, if you want to say, and maybe it's true for you, that you never doubt, well, I guess I would say that's good for you, but, or, or maybe you're not quite aware of the depth of your own heart. It's pretty normal. But if you want to feed your faith, you go to the Word. You study and you show yourself approved. You get beyond devotional reading and you study the Word of God. It will create a robust faith that will endure you through seasons of doubt and it will not let that doubt turn to unbelief. See, the Jews refused, the unbelieving Jews refused to believe that salvation is possible only by grace through faith in Christ alone. And because of these unbelievers, look at verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Paul and Barnabas. This is what the gospel does. It does this to families and friends and sometimes communities. It divides. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. I'm going to divide. But how does it actually divide? Years ago, Keith and Sharon Bropes and our family, we've gone camping a couple times together. We each packed up our pop-up campers and we went to Lackawanna State Park for the weekend and I took along with me something I had just bought. It was, a, it was a one million candle watt flashlight. Now, Keith, Keith is a little insecure. He's seven foot 20, and he's insecure of his masculinity. And he's here, so I can say that. So Keith went out and bought a two million candle watt flashlight. Do you remember that, Keith? And he bragged all weekend, and I'm glad he had it. Here's why I'm glad he had it. At night, around our campfire, my family, Keith and Sharon, we're having a great time when all of a sudden we see trottling towards us a skunk. Both of us took the flashlights and beamed it on the skunk, and immediately it turned around and began waddling away. And we're walking, and we're talking, we're sitting around the campfire, and not more than 10 minutes later, here it comes again. We spent most of the evening shining these powerful lights until they ran out of charge, and then we went to bed because this skunk couldn't tolerate the light. Now, I want you to take that analogy. Hopefully, that's imprinting on your mind the light on the skunk. It turns around, and it leaves. And I want you to know that's exactly what the gospel does. Do you not know that? This is what the gospel does. It shines a light into the heart and it exposes what is in the heart. And a lot of people are going to flee from that. They're going to run from that. They're going to look for the nearest shadows. They're going to try to get back into the darkness. Why? They want to hide both their sins and they want to hide from God. 
This is what Jesus meant when he said the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. If you preach the gospel, if you share the gospel with an unsaved person, don't be surprised if they reject it, if they're unbelieving, if it divides and you lose your friendship. They're trying to get away from you so that they can hide back in the shadows. And do you love them enough to call them back out? You see, in Iconium, the light of the gospel shined in their hearts. Here's the result. Look at verse 5. An attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. But Paul and Barnabas focused on those who believed, and it's there we go next. Remember, go, win, and finally teach. It's how you make disciples. Number three, teach. Look at verse 3. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. You know, I was thinking recently, this is, this is weird and amazing to me because it just seems like it's gone so fast. You know, this August will mark 25 years that I've been here at Cornerstone. What an amazing weird thing to think about you don't need to do that wasn't trying to get the clapping what i wanted to do though is tell you a it's a privilege to be here that long here's why you know why you know what the average tenure of a pastor is a senior pastor at a church six years that's not long enough to see fruit and it's that principle for Paul and Barnabas. Look what it says again. So they remained for a long time, verse 3. Now I want you to think about that for a second. I want you to think about that personally for a second with your own ministry, okay? Paul and Barnabas remained there for a long time. Why? I'm going to show you in a minute why. But I want you to think about your own ministry, at your companies. Maybe you've been there for 30 years. Maybe you've been at your college for four years. Maybe you've been in your high school for three years. You've got one more to go. Or maybe you've been at your neighborhood for 50 years. I don't know, but think about it for a moment. You've got a long time that you potentially could invest in people. And this is the principle of Paul and Barnabas. It takes time. They were there for a long time. I don't think they were there for 15, 20, 25 years. I think they were there for several weeks. But notice how Luke wrote this, verse 2. You ready? Everybody look at verse 2. This is amazing. The unbelieving Jews poisoned their minds against the brothers, so they remained for a long time. What Luke, who wrote this, seems to be indicating is that they didn't stay a long time and speak boldly despite persecution, but because of it. They knew they needed to teach these new believers or they were never going to get rooted. And even with threats towards themselves, even with hostility towards themselves, even though the city was divided, even though there was rejection for them, they said, no, we love them. We have gone, we have won, and we must teach. It is our responsibility to do that. We cannot let them learn on their own. 
You see, the, friend, the, the heart of a disciple maker feels responsibility for those that they win to the Lord. Did you hear that? This is so important. If you have a disciple maker's heart, whether you lead a growth group, whether you're in a flourish group, whether you're investing in same-gender people along with you, whether you've got a Bible study at, at work or a Bible study at school, there is going to emerge in you. If you have a disciple-maker's heart that's on mission for Jesus, there will emerge in you a sense, I am responsible for that person's growth. And even if it's not me personally teaching them, maybe I need to hand them off to somebody that could do it even better. There's still a responsibility in you, and it was in Paul and Barnabas as well. And it leads me to ask you a very serious question. Oh, this is actually the most serious one I've asked yet today. Christian, who are you teaching about Jesus? Who are you teaching about Jesus? It's shocking to me, honestly. I'm just going to be very honest with you. I think I'm always being honest with you. I'm just going to be very transparent with you. It's shocking to me. How many Christians at Cornerstone? They are not going, they are not winning, and they are not teaching. And I just constantly wonder, what on earth do you think you're going to hear when you stand before Jesus? Do you really believe that he is going to say to you who would not go, would not win, and would not teach, well done, good and faithful servant, you're not going to hear that. He's given you one mission. It's very simple. Go, win, and teach. Who are you teaching about Jesus? I don't mean formal education. I don't mean you in a pulpit. I don't mean you up in a classroom of, of students. I mean, who are you explaining the scriptures to? Who are you encouraging in their faith? Who are you helping to observe all that I have commanded you, Matthew 28? Maybe it's your children. That's awesome. Or maybe it's even your grandchildren. Or maybe you are inviting some of your coworkers to join you in a Bible study at lunch or after work one evening. We had an FBI agent that started a Bible study in New York City, in his office, and his boss shut it down. So they began to meet after work. Maybe you're a student at college or high school, and maybe you're going to start a Christian Bible study or a study group this year that meets after school each week. Maybe you go win and you teach right in your own neighborhood with a backyard VBS. Whatever it might be, learn from Paul and Barnabas. Remain for a long time. Speak boldly. Trust the Lord. Look at verse 3. Who was granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. You know what those are, right? Those are miracles that confirm the message is true and the messenger is reliable. 
And God still performs these signs and wonders today. They're, they're, they're seen in the form of answered prayer. Some of you have heard me say it before. This is back in the 1980s when I was at Liberty University in my undergrad. And one of the people in the Bible study that I ran off campus was saying, please pray for my family. Here comes Hurricane Hugo coming right up the East Coast. It's heading right towards my mom and dad's town and I just ask you to pray that their home will be spared. You know what happened? And I'm not kidding you. And I cannot even make this up. Every home along that strip of beach was demolished to the ground except theirs. That's true. That's a wonder. That's a miracle. That's what you can proclaim. And when you proclaim it, God brings glory to himself. He confirms the message, and he confirms the reliability of the messenger. They are answered prayers. Do you remember months ago, one of our own people from this actual service, Josh Case, do you remember one of our Arise videos where he got out of his car early in the morning and a mugger shot at him? We saw it on video. Do you remember it put a hole under his armpit in his coat? But even though he shot multiple times at Josh, none of the bullets hit him. You know what? That's a wonder. That's a miracle. Josh can share that. And it, re and it confirms the message of Jesus Christ and the reliability of the messenger. That's a wonder. You see, people at Iconium were trying to kill Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas fled south. But notice what they did in verse 7. There, when they fled to the next city, they continued to preach the gospel. What is our mission? What is our mission? It is to make disciples. How do we do that? We go as the Lord leads. We win lost people to Christ. We teach them all about the word of his grace. And friends, this is the best part of this entire message, at least it is to me. It's the word of his grace. Who doesn't want to talk about grace? We don't tell people that you've got to earn God's love. We don't tell people that you've got to do more good works than your bad works. We don't tell people that God will love them when they get their act right. This is the word of grace. This means that God loves you even in spite of yourself. And he will take you as you are and he will save you. And he'll begin restoring a purpose to your life. Who does not want to tell people about that? That honestly is the best of the best news. He loves you because he is love and he has provided a way through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So go, win, and teach. And we probably have a tornado that's about to hit us. <laughs> One of these days, I will tell you a true story about being in church with a tornado on the way when I lived in Georgia as a pastor. Here's how I'm going to close. And I'm going to ask Pastor Matthew to come on up here in just a moment. I want you to think about this message. Because you're going to see this pattern over and over through Paul and Barnabas' ministry. They went as the Lord directed them. They won people to Jesus. And they taught them how to grow in Christ. Friends, it's three ways and they all go together, and it's simple. 
That's how you make disciples. You go, you win, and you teach. Whose face came to mind earlier? That's the person. That's the person. How are you going to tell them about Jesus? It starts by going. Be faithful with that. We're going to pray for you in a minute. Lord, I thank you, Father, for Paul and Barnabas and their excellent example. Lord, even as they were driven out of Antioch and Pisidia, they did not stop. They went to the next city. They did it again. They went, they won, and they taught. Lord, it's very much the pattern. And what did they teach? They taught about Jesus, about his death and burial and resurrection, the grace of God. Lord, we know. Lord, I think everybody here knows we have only one mission as Christians. But will we go, will we win, and will we teach? May you find us faithful, good and faithful servants. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.